Hello and welcome. I'm your host Petri, and this show helps you to build your company. In this episode, I talk with entrepreneur and lawyer Preston Byrne. He has first-hand experience of building cutting-edge technology, among the first, and getting his share of ridicule for the fringe approach. You can also be lucky in this episode, but you have to use all the resources available and not just your ears. <clears throat> That's a hint. It will all become clear in a moment, and I will give you the answer after the interview. Hey, Preston, how are your favorite um, rodents? Uh, marmots. Um, marmots are doing well. I, I don't currently have any marmots because I've just moved. Uh, but fortunately, some of my Bitcoin friends have marmots in their yard. So marmot coin printing facilities have moved uh, from my house over to theirs. Can you elaborate a bit the joke? There's probably someone in the audience who are not exactly so familiar with the rodents and what they do with Bitcoin and in your backyard. Yeah. So, so for those of you who uh, who haven't who haven't you know, come across me on the internet before, my name's Preston. Uh, I'm a lawyer, and back in the day, I did some really early stage kind of enterprisey blockchain stuff. And when I was doing that, I decided it was hilarious, and also it was kind of like a, a, a stress reaction of, of a sort to basically shitpost marmots on Twitter as much as possible. And marmots are these really adorable, fuzzy rodents, uh, groundhogs, for those of you who are from the US East Coast, those are marmots. And so we posted pictures of marmots everywhere because back in the day, like blockchain stuff was really weird. So we decided maybe to be approachable and for a little bit of fun, we would post pictures of marmots everywhere because I like the animals and, and they were fun. So, um, so yeah, basically, I've been talking about marmots ever since, and I think the rest of this podcast will probably be interspersed marmots throughout. So, um, so maybe you can count and see how many times I mentioned marmots in this podcast, which is otherwise going to be about Bitcoin and uh, Bitcoin and, and legal issues pertaining thereto. So, are you offering any perks? Who exactly can count the amount of that word people are saying or you saying? <laughs> yeah, is, saying? There, is there a prize? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, Pay attention, is, please. <laughs> yeah, there, there is. There is no prize except uh, except your your attentiveness uh, will be a reward all on its own. And there's actually a hidden joke there. But in order to get that one, uh, audience needs to listen and probably Preston as well. The previous episode, the last tweet, we were talking about that. How some people are luckier than the other ones. And it's quite simple. But in order to, to be lucky in this episode, you need to just to stay awake and listen. <laughs> what should we talk about today? One of the things I've been thinking is that education is going to be looking a bit different in the future. And you were stating that in 50 years, there are no schools and universities. Can you elaborate? Yes, it'll be really interesting to see what happens to schools and universities. Um, at the moment, there are these massive, uh, you know, institutions. Although they're not institutions in the sense of like patterns of behavior, they're institutions in the sense of large buildings and funds and members of staff that are just kind of lumbering around without purpose. And I question whether they're actually fit for purpose anymore. And COVID has really laid bare um, the, the lie, I think, that schools and universities have been doing a good job at preparing people for the rest of the world. So Google just announced a, an internal company credential for various jobs within the company, IT support or project uh, project management or web development. And those certificates, Google said, listen, we regard someone for internal hiring purposes with one of these certificates as being equivalent to someone who comes out of a university with a BA, right? And so the certificate costs $300 and it's administered over six months, whereas the BA costs $150,000 and it's administered over four years. And like, I think we can all be realistic about what we were. I mean, I knew what I was doing in college. I was doing a lot of carousing and drinking and partying. And I was now and again and writing some papers, but it wasn't this like hyper-condensed, hyper-focused effort. And I bet if you did hyper-focus it, like let's say you're doing language instruction in a foreign country where you're doing seven hours or eight hours a day, day after day, if you did something like that, you could probably cram most of university into about six or eight months. Um, so the tech companies have figured out that the, the skills they're looking for aren't really coming from traditional educational providers anymore. And so what we're seeing is this move back to vocational education and programming, um, which uh, and it's interesting to see. It's fascinating to see, to be honest with you. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I very strongly suspect that schools won't exist in 50 years. I mean, hopefully they won't exist in 10. 
um, or at least most of them won't, except for a couple of handful of really elite institutions that focus very much in depth on certain soft sciences like politics or economics or things like that, where you don't really need to, it's not vocational training as such, it's just critical thinking training or academic training. So what will be the thing replacing all this? Learning doesn't go away. It's becoming, or it's already for some people, lifelong learning. So are we letting youngsters going more easier in the first 12, 18, 20 years? What are they going to do? I mean, I think you, I mean, I'm a lawyer. So one thing that we have to deal with as attorneys is that lifelong learning is is very much part of the job. Um, you know, they, there's an expression, they say, you never know as much law as when you first get out of law school, um, because then, of course, it all gets replaced with a lot of practical knowledge rather than theoretical knowledge. Um, but you, the legal profession is con- is a constant exercise in learning new things. And if you're not, you, I mean, you can, if you really, really want to, you can get hyper-specialist and do one particular discipline. But even then, you're still learning about new types of you know property that's being securitized, for example. I used to be a debt finance lawyer. And so when I was a very young, my path was supposed to be You work in this law firm, you do a hundred different debt finance deals. And then when you're done, some people start coming back to you and they make you a partner, right? So that, that was the, the path that I was supposed to take, or at least at the beginning of my career, it looked like it was going to take. And I wound up going very much off piste and decided to do something completely different. But, um, but yeah, I think for lawyers though, it is very, we've been very accustomed to the fact that something new comes in the door and you have to go and apply your your skills to going and figuring out new information and learning new facts and maybe learning new law and uh, and things like that and the law of course is always changing so you have to keep on top of it i think for a lot of people in the in other middle class workers uh, this may not necessarily have been the case so people that work at big corporations people who work at banks um, for them lifelong learning outside of their discipline uh, is not something which they were normally expected to do but i think going forward it's something they are going to be expected to do Um, so, so it, it's doable. It's achievable. It just means that you have to read a lot more than than, than you usually were. Than most people are accustomed to doing. I have a perfect question for you. I don't know whether you you know really the perfect a lawyer to answer that one, but you're the only one I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, can we change education from the legal perspective? Usually, governments like very much to have the education. You know, what can be done? You know, what, what are the limits, the parameters we can do, and what would it really take to change the system completely? So a lot of education actually comes from, weirdly, it comes from government hiring policy. In the US, for example, they have a law degree called the Juris Doctor. And the Juris Doctor only exists because back in the day, um, the federal government would had pay scales and they would pay people based on what degree they had that would determine where you step in in government service. So the lawyers got really bent out of shape that people with PhDs who did them in four or five years post-grad Uh, were getting paid at a different scale than they were because they only had bachelor's degrees because they went and got their BA and then the law schools were awarding an LLB, a legum baccalaureus. So as a consequence, they said, um, I said, listen, guys, we we actually think this should be a, a doctoral degree because we spent three years post-grad. Now, mind you, you didn't do, they didn't do any research, right? It was three years taught post-graduate, but they said, listen, we we expect to be treated like doctors. So, um, you know, you know, doctors of philosophy. So the government's hiring policy dictated what the universities had to produce in order to create the bureaucrats that then went into the system. So I think that's really the limits of the government's control. And also, for example, then in the UK, I think is another another example of where this, this applies. Um, they have a multi-tiered immigration system. And so when I was applying for a visa in the UK, they increased the requirements uh, from holding a BA to holding an MA. And I went to one of four ancient universities in Scotland that awards an MA as the undergraduate degree. So when I was looking at the immigration application, I said, well, it says Master of Arts in the front. I might as well just say I got a master's because that's what it is. So you applied with the master's degree and they said, yes, we agree with you. This is a master's. It's not a bachelor's, even though it's the undergraduate degree. So, oh, by the way, it also happens that the six top universities in the country, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, St. Andrews, Edinburgh, uh, Dundee, And, uh, and Glasgow, you know, or at least the top two in England, the top four in Scotland, all happen to award MAs to all of their undergrad graduates. So is this kind of quirk, which they surely were aware of, that by saying, listen, we're going to say that you need to have an MA, well, that will exclude a BA who went to Warwick University 
but it will not exclude a BA that matriculates into an MA who went to Oxford University. So the, the government policy can have an impact as to what universities do in terms of what little bit of paper that they produce. There are other requirements too. In the US, you're not allowed to, so ABA accreditation is something which applies to a lot of law schools. And ABA accreditation is not given to uh, correspondence programs. So you can't do a law degree by mail. You have to actually go and attend at a law school. Um, and so that's something where we've seen certain requirements uh, from the from the ABA accreditation standpoint, which then gets passed on into the state bars uh, accrediting requirements themselves, because they say, listen, we will only accept an ABA accredited law degree for the purposes of qualifying for the law exam. So we're seeing there another sort of interaction between government and schools in terms of dictating how the uh, you know how the education has to be administered, and then that determines what education is qualifying. So those are all still there, and I think those will start to break down eventually because it, it, this COVID thing really has shown people how useless um, you know it, it, you, how useless physical attendance is, and how much cost is involved in doing it. Um, so I mean I I can't see the usual model surviving if there are reputable institutions that start offering knockdown price bachelor's you know bachelor's degrees that can be administered remotely sounds to me that there's a lot of protectionism involved and also a bit of hard coding borrowing from the tech world that you just hard code what's in your mind or what's actually the purpose here in the short term right in, in the moment when you're writing the law and and then all the next generations are suffering from the consequences i don't think most of the educational norms aren't really hard coded into the law So there's no law which says in order to uh, in order to get a job you must have a bachelor's, right? There are certain requirements which are set down, like for for at least for lawyers, those requirements are set down by bar admissions committees, but they're rules of the court. They're not necessarily rules of of statute. So it's not really a law, as it is a law. It's a rule of a legal nature, but it's a rule of a legal nature which can be very easily changed, at least in the perspective of you know, admitting new lawyers. I think for the rest of the economy, though, you can it's all entirely informal. And so really, the, the changes could happen very, very quickly once you get big corporations, which are doing most of the hiring, to change their expectations. So if, it's, if you're more likely to get a job at Google, having obtained Google qualifications than having gone and done a, a CS degree at Stanford, um, you know, it's not going to take long for people to figure out that if they want a $100,000 a year job straight out of high school, they should go take the Google course and then start working at Google. Um, and, and that I think is going to be really compelling for people at this point, because that's what you're looking at. You're looking at someone who's 18 years old, just finished high school. They have two options, either go get a, a bachelor's at some university, it may not be a good one, or go and take this qualification and start earning $80,000 a year working customer support at Google. That's a pretty compelling proposition. And that's really going to start to draw talented candidates away from the colleges uh, and into professional training environments where they just do it at the corporation. Obviously, there are better markets for some student education than other. If you're studying ancient history or something, probably you are not exactly as uh, in high demand like someone who is coding or, or doing things which are in, in short supply at the moment. So uh, I think that's probably the quickest way indeed to change the system, that uh, people are just doing things which are bringing them jobs and making them money And the educational system needs to adapt to that. And it's starting from the easier ones to in, in high demand and then rippling down to the rest of the economy. I mean, it's not so much it's not so, so much adaptation. I mean, the, the guys out in California who are pushing these changes know what they're doing. It's disruption. Um, yeah. it, it, so the educational system is not adapting. I don't think universities can adapt. Because imagine you tell some university, which is geared towards making money through a variety of means, makes money through endowments, which are provided by alumni. It makes money by providing campus services, which it administers at a profit, so cafeterias, dormitories, that sort of thing. Uh, it makes money by tuition. It makes money from federal grants. And you suddenly say to them, okay, well, we're going to take the student out of that, right? So they're not really going to have any particular loyalty to their alma mater uh, because they never attended in person. It was just a course that they did by mail. There was no sort of sense of camaraderie that they had as being part of a community. Uh, furthermore, they're not going to be consuming cafeteria food. Additionally, they're not going to be consuming any of your residential services. And finally, uh, you know, they're just doing this as a formality so that they can just get a qualification and get out. 
and they're not really looking at any other value add. They don't care about your campus. They don't care about your library. Everything's online. They just sit at home and do this at home. And by the end of it, you give them a piece of paper and they're on their way. You, you can't adapt to that. That destroys the old model. The only way that you can, the only way a university that's that, that's geared towards administering old style education can pivot its business to this new style is essentially by re-architecting its entire business and throwing out everything that was there before or offering what was there before as some kind of premium service like Hogwarts, where you just go and you, sh you show up or some boarding school where you just show up. And then it's a very, very small elite who are consuming that kind of community stuff, which is how college was, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago. These are these small exclusive experiences and everyone else went off to vocational training. Um, what happened in the eighties and nineties is that they said, well, everyone must go to college. Um, and now what we're finding is that sending everybody to college maybe wasn't a smart idea because most people had no business being there and didn't really need that experience for what they were actually going to be doing in the in professional sphere. So basically they were just chasing credentials for the sake of chasing credentials in a job market that didn't need them. Um, so yeah, I, I don't see them adapting to this. I see them either. I see a lot of colleges and we're starting to see it in New England. Um, I think Hampshire College is shutting down. There are a couple of others that are on the brinks. These very, very small colleges, a couple of hundred students each or a couple thousand uh, are shutting down right, left, and center up in New England or in their very dire financial straits. And so the next tier will be those highly expensive private schools um, that, uh, that cost a ton of money and don't really deliver anything altogether different from a state school, which does the same thing for half the cost. Uh, I think those are next. And so it'll be interesting to see, see when and how they, uh, they wind up folding. What are the opportunities now in, in this decade? What do you see? I mean, there are a lot. <laughs> I think one of, the big, I mean, it's, one of the big ones is AI. Um, so that will, that will speed. And we've been seeing this for a long time, at least in the legal community, is that there's this weird, law has long relied on this weird pipeline where you have a wait, few wait. Should, should I do a Turing test? Are you actually a Preston? <laughs> yeah. yeah no, it does, it talk, does it talk about varmints? Before yeah. else. Actually, yeah. in fact, it hasn't. Am I talking to Siri? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyway, back, back on track. I mean, so the, the law has had this weird progression, right? You're supposed to, and I remember being told this when I was a very, very junior lawyer by my parents, who are also both lawyers, and by other lawyers. It's a progression, right? You get on a treadmill at the beginning of your career, and you just stay on it, and you just proceed forward. Or, or like, it's not even a treadmill. It's more like a travelator. Um, so you hop on and you wait, and as the passage of time elapses, you gradually advance, and then you you know get more responsibility, and then you have a busier practice. Blah 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 blah. So you're supposed to get on as a trainee or a first year associate. You hang out there for a decade, and then you either go in house, go of counsel, or become a partner. Right? Those are your three options. Um, so if you go in house, if you decide you don't want to work that hard, you go of counsel. If you're not able to make partner, or you don't want to make partner for whatever reason because the targets. Um, and then you make partner. That's if you're really, if you're good at hustling for business, essentially. Um, so that's the path that you're supposed to take. And then you hang out as a partner, a junior partner for 10 years, a senior partner for 10 or 15. And then at that point you're out of life, right? You're 60 years old and, uh, or in your mid fifties and you start making decisions about what you want to do for your retirement. So that pathway is dependent on junior lawyers doing a lot of menial work that, is really when you go to law school and you, you you have your head is full of ideals and all the rest of it, you don't think that you're going to be sitting there and checking to make sure commas are in the right place. And so when you first encounter it, uh, it's something which comes as a little bit of a shock to the system. You say, well, I've got all this education. I know all these rules. And yet here I am you know, messing around with this document and making sure everything's in the right place. Um, that turns out to be super important because you have to learn where everything is so that later on you can identify where there are mistakes or what needs to be done. Um, but AI has the potential to very much eliminate and GPT three has, I, I was always a bit skeptical that it could do this, but then when I saw GPT three recently, I realized that, um, the bottom end of the market, that initial production of documentation by, uh, by juniors based on a certain set of very limited parameters, um, that is going to be automated almost completely. So we're going to have computer programs that can take public company documents and public company filings. Uh, they can take inputs from right out, actually, frankly, they can probably take inputs right from the company's own servers. Uh, and then they can produce a document which is more accurate than a team of lawyers could produce. The lawyers will then review that document and before it gets published, and then the document will go out and get published. But the actual process of producing it 
which used to be quite labor intensive, uh, will not be so labor intensive anymore. And so that will eliminate the need for junior lawyers, which will make the profession more top heavy um, because there's not as many fees coming in from the junior lawyers doing all that work. So there, there are some changes coming to, to this profession. That uh, So you're saying good news. Uh, we're going to get rid of all the lawyers in uh, two generations. No, I mean, I think, I think you'll probably get rid of some junior public company lawyers. Um, yeah. M&A will like public company compliance will become a lot easier uh, and a lot cheaper than it currently is, which is that so M&A lawyers, I think, are, are in some serious trouble and debt finance lawyers are also probably in serious trouble. Um, what What won't be in serious trouble are things like crisis management or general counsel work for for small early stage companies. Where you really have to—it's not so much about producing large numbers of documents; it's about understanding what the client's commercial objectives are and trying to guide them through a potentially thorny, uh, you know, thicket of, uh, of of difficult choices in times like COVID, or if there's some you know disaster, or if there's some criminal issue, or if there's whatever, right? Fill in the blank, whatever crisis might arise. That's still going to be there. The lawyer as counselor, no creative things, the more challenging, harder things. And it used to be like that, right? So like this hyper-specialization that we see in the profession now, uh, where humans are basically operating as document-preparing computers, um, that really didn't start until the 60s and 70s. And then it accelerated in the 80s. In the 90s, a big law profession, in order to get ahead, you had to be hyper-hyper-focused on a very narrow type of transaction or deal and then, uh, or, or area of law, unless you were like some corporate M&A quarterback. The way that you got ahead was you were the guy who does X, right? I don't think the guy. Sorry, sorry. Why did that happen? What's the background for that? You know, was it computers? What was driving this type of thing? If you know, obviously, business has been done for many hundreds of years, thousands of years, and you know, what what changed? So, computers increased the complexity of transactions, um, particularly in the '80s. We started to see, and that's what created securitizations. Really, was the ability to to model and, uh, and and create instruments on the back of very complicated and cash flows backed by enormous, you know, enormously huge pools of assets, thirty thousand, forty thousand mortgages at a time. So, so that was um, that was part of it for sure. The other part was that the market sort of market dynamics for law practice is that lawyers compete either on skill or price, right? Those are the two, you know, skill, price, and personal service. Let's say are the three sort of uh, levers. You know, the sliding levers that you can adjust with a, with a given lawyer. So you can have a really, really friendly, affable guy who um, pays no attention to uh, to your matter, but uh, but is very, very good at something. And maybe you go to him or you can have a guy who's not so good technically, but he's really good with client service. Uh, and um, and he's good at putting you in touch with the right people, but he's not the guy who's going to be crunching away on the documents. So we we have an expression in the profession that there are three types of lawyers, minders, finders, and grinders. So your minders are the white hair who sit around and make sure that everything's okay, kind of run the office and that sort of thing. Your finders are hungry young guys and gals who go out and bring in new clients and new business. And the grinders are ones who are really technically quite good lawyers, but they just don't have any appetite for doing things like business development or podcasts or anything else. I'm a very bad grinder. I, I freely admit that. Um, but but you, know, you are grinder. I, I'm a, I, I like to call. I like to think of myself as a finder. Um, I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty and do do the work. Um, and, you know, indeed, because that's our bread and butter. But there are people for whom if I've got a large and complicated M&A transaction, I know who I'm going to send it to. And it's going to be one of my law partners. It's not going to be me. I will do things like licensing agreements and stuff like that. So not not you know, M&A documents and, and sale and purchase agreements and things like that. So for 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 any attorney, right, there's a universe of possibilities. The market has incentivized up till very recently focusing very narrowly on something because if you're competing on skill and price, the objective is to say, I am the best at this, right? This person is the best at whatever that is fill in the blank. Um, and then, or they're very good at it or they're very well known for it. And then the question is, well, okay, well, how much does it cost to get that service? And so if I want to get a slightly, you know, less expensive service, maybe I then go to the next guy and say, well, I don't want to pay $2,000 an hour or $80,000 or $100,000 for a seed round. I want to pay 50. I want to pay 20. So then how does my, how do my preferences adjust? Because if you go to Cravath, Swain and more, you know, they'll, they'll take anybody, but if you can pay their fees, which not everybody can, same thing with like Sullivan and Cromwell or another firm like that, they have very, very good lawyers, but they're also very, very expensive. 
So the question is, where do you fit into the market? And as an early stage lawyer, you don't go and say, well, I do early stage counsel for Sullivan and Cromwell, um, <laughs> like for companies that have no money and uh, and were started last week. That's You don't go into big law to go represent those kinds of companies. Um, so I think that's where, where we might see some change in the future is that the I am the best becomes less relevant if you know that the documents are very good automatically. Um, then the question is, all right, well, how do you differentiate as a, as a law firm? That's one question. Uh, if everybody else is running the same software as you, um, law firms have different precedent banks and template banks. So in, in London, for example, Clifford Chance is widely regarded as having the best precedents in town. And so whenever someone gets a hold of a Clifford Chance document, you can be sure they're going to save it down to their machine and keep hold on to it in perpetuity because it's a really good precedent in case they get a similar deal coming across the desk. So that's something where precedents are things people held on to. Um, but people, will, sophisticated clients will sometimes come in and be like, well, why am I paying for this at this firm rather than this firm? Uh, because you're all using Clifford Chance's documents anyway. So like, there's something you would hear on a, on a fairly regular basis is that whatever Clifford Chance does then becomes market for the rest of, uh, of the city. And so in the future, I don't think they're going to have that, that monopoly anymore. It's much more likely that someone like Google will be deploying an AI, which then can create market documents uh, that, uh, you know, based on various inputs from across its business units, they'll, they'll have some very good intelligence about what's market for a range of different uh, types of, of documentation. So that's the first problem. And then the second problem is not, so you have the firms, how did the firms stay competitive? And the second one is how did the individual lawyers stay competitive? Because remember within a law firm, it's not like a, a company where you have a, a direct report, right? And so I don't report to anybody as a partner in a law firm, except to the managing partner and the executive committee. And they pretty much leave you alone as long as you're doing your work. Um, so that's like, that, that's how every law firm works. Basically partners don't, don't associates report to partners, partners report to their executive committees and their managing partners. So that's the structure. Um, then like what happens if you suddenly have, um, to, and each individual partner, I should say, is like an, a standalone business unit, right? So you've got your own PL, you've got your own clients that you're bringing in, you have your own billable hours that you've done per year. And so you can track whether you individually are profitable vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the firm. And your job is to feed yourself, to feed your law partners, and to feed your associates so that the whole firm is profitable. Um, so the question is, what happens if all of a sudden this model where we've had these hyper-specialized lawyers that only do one set of documents, if we suddenly have the AIs that can replace them, right? So that suddenly changes the incentive for the individual members of the profession um, in ways that we may not expect or understand. But it's certain, will people go to people who are essentially document production computers if the document production piece is now well and truly handled by a machine? Um, and then what kind of person, you know, I think lawyers will still exist, but the question is what kind of person will you know, will be expect will people be going to when they need a lawyer? Um, what kind of advice will they be giving out? Uh, and what kind of person is going to be you know, better at this than other types of people? Um, you know, to, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how the profession changes. Have you already seen some kind of AI services which are providing basic uh, law things? I know that uh, they are already something that you can claim if your flight is delayed or some parking tickets, and these are already you know in place. But yeah, with more complex situations. I've seen. Yeah, that app is called Do Not Pay. It's by a guy named Josh Browder. Um, I'm not comfortable with that because it calls itself a robot lawyer, but it's not. It's basically a form filling service. And so that's not something where, um, so you can fill, filling forms is one thing, right? You can always provide, in, at least in the US, you're allowed to provide forms for people to fill out in forms libraries. And we've seen, um, I think Cooley has one on its website. It has some startup financing documents. And so you can click and parameterize a bunch of different things and generate like a convertible note, and various other things. So there are law firms who have done the form filling thing and there's no AI involved there. There's just basically you know, a, a series of questions and those questions say, all right, well then, and a decision tree, and then it produces the document based on following that algorithm, right? But that's not an AI. There's no, there's no neural network. There's no creativity. It's just saying, listen, here are all of the potential options and we're going to help you fill in this particular document based on those options. So I'm very skeptical. Whenever someone says AI, I usually go, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> so especially in law, because AI really, um, AI in law doesn't exist yet, but it, it, it will in very, very short order. You touched the point that you were becoming, or you already were a, let's say city lawyer, uh, securitization and, and finance, uh, fancy stuff. But then something happened. 
what happened? You- uh, I got I got bored. <laughs> that was uh, I got bored. I then built uh, or helped build. I didn't build. Um, a prototype with two other guys on a fork of the Ethereum proof of concept three testnet uh, called Eris F- 14, early 14. And it was designed to be an automated decision-making platform. We called it a DAO. Uh, I think it was the first of its kind. And it was basically adding permissioning into a Genesis block of a Ethereum fork so that you could determine things like who can add a block, uh, who can post transactions to a tr- to the chain, who can uh, add smart contracts to the chain, and at the time we called it a permissioned blockchain, uh, and that was and we were widely ridiculed for creating this thing. Uh, but basically, that was the genesis for a lot of at least the intellectual genesis, if not the direct genesis, uh, for a lot of projects that followed about distributed ledger tech and um, and you know distributed crypto ledgers that were serving purposes other than a cryptocurrency. So that was the first, really the first of its kind. Um, and what happened was we built that prototype. And then a very nice fellow named Sean Park, who's the um, president and CEO, I think, of Anthemus, or chairman, actually, excuse me, of Anthemus Group, which is a London-based fintech uh, VC firm, found it, uh, gave us a call. He invited it, uh, the team out to his uh, place in Maribel in the French Alps, where uh, he was holding a conference with his entire you know, his entire venture fund and, and advisory firm. And we went out there and they made the decision to invest in us, did three months of diligence. We closed, a, I think, a million pounds of investment or thereabouts. And um, and then we're off to the races and ran a company for a while selling stuff to banks. So what happened? Obviously, you're not doing that anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> so on that, uh, they decided uh, in 2017. They said, "Listen, we're uh, the I, this ICO stuff is all the rage, and so we're going to do one of those." Um, so I resigned. Uh, I said, "Okay, that that's not uh, that's not up my street." So I'm going to pursue some other interests, and I went back to law school in the states. Uh, at the time, I was admitted in England and uh, went back to law school in the States, uh, re-qualified here in the U.S., uh, and, uh, and and became admitted here in the U.S., and then opened my own law firm, uh, which I ran for about 18 months before joining my current firm, which is Anderson Kill. What have you learned? You also advising uh, tech companies who are in the leading edge of different uh, services. So what, you've seen a lot of different situations, I could imagine, not all of them too much fun and, and glorious, but you know maybe something to to be aware of if you're a startup founder. Um, I know many cases where not so nice stuff has happened, mostly human factors, but these are the things people don't usually talk about, uh, but it happens quite often. So is there something we could learn from your experience of, of working with uh, different companies in different continents and in different situations? Yeah. Yeah, startups, you can usually, I think you can probably tell whether a startup's going to succeed or fail um, more or less immediately after they incorporate by reviewing their business plan. Um, it's it, what I have seen uh, in startup land. There are a lot of companies that uh, either have a lot of steps to get through to get towards monetization or they um, or they just don't have a concrete plan to get to monetization and profitability, right? So yeah, and it's clear that it, this is particularly true in advanced technology areas. You see a lot of companies that are coming in and saying, listen, we have this great, fantastical thing. And in order for it to work, we need to build for a year and a half and do this and then sell it to that and then get this particular thing. So you can tell when it's a little too early uh, for someone to be doing something. And um, and so so usually when I, I have, I've come across a lot of early stage entrepreneurs who walk into my office or you know, in a figurative sense on COVID because they're not literally walking into my office. Zooming um, in the office. Yeah, <laughs> zooming in the office. And and you're like, all right, cool. This is interesting what you built, but like, what's your plan? Like, where where is this going? And then some some of them kind of shrug and say, well, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. We, we don't have a concrete plan. And those those projects usually fail pretty quickly um, rather than, uh, they, they, usually, they usually fail pretty quickly. Now, of course, it is possible, certainly, that you could have a loss-making project which goes for years and years and years and years and eventually becomes Amazon, like Amazon itself or like Google itself. Um, but with those companies, I mean, you can tell with those that the user metrics are going up and it's just a question of tweaking the model a bit. Whereas with some companies, it's just really apparent that the founders don't have any clue as to how they're going to make money. Uh, and with that, if you don't know, if you literally have no concept of how you're going to make money, 
uh, it's not a good idea to go and start a startup. Like you, you should be, it, that's the first thing. And the second thing is uh, venture, uh, venture funding is possibly the worst thing you can ever take for your business. You are far better off running lean, lean, lean with some very good engineers. Uh, and you, and I've seen companies build some amazing things with, with a, with a staff of two or three, um, you know, really, really good, competent, dedicated people, um, with two or three of them, like you can accomplish virtually anything. And then I've seen other companies that are competing with them with 30 or 40 people, um, and they're accomplishing far less. So, so you, you can see where, when, when there's magic happening, it's really obvious where the magic is happening. And when there isn't magic happening, it, it's also really obvious if you choose not to delude yourself uh, about, about what you're looking at. And so in either case, you know, the good legal advice can help both of those companies get themselves on the right path, because particularly if they're in a tricky area, you've got to get those I's dotted and those T's crossed before you can actually proceed any further. But, um, but you, you know, you have to be, you have to be realistic with your clients. Um, and, and what you've got to be, you've, you've got to be helpful as you can. And that means as a lawyer, not just sitting there and saying, okay, well, I'm going to walk into your office and we're going to do this and you're going to write the contract and you're going to send me a bill. If the client wants me to do that, fine. What I usually find is that they're a little, they prefer kind of a, a looser, uh, dialogue where we talk about their business, what they want to achieve, how they want to achieve it. I can say, listen, I've been here, I've done that, I've, I've got the T-shirt, and uh, and here's where I think you're going wrong. You know, take my advice or don't. It's up to you. And some people like it, and some people don't. And if they like it, they keep getting it. So it's um, it, it's fun being a startup lawyer who has actually run a startup because you get to kind of you know see new people who are going through the same things and all the lessons that you had from your experience. You can then pass them on to somebody else uh, and also learn from watching them do what you no longer wish to do, which is run a startup. Now is your chance to give some wisdom, maybe top five of the things that do not do and please do these things to make your life easier, you know, when they knock on your door. <laughs> top five. Uh, thing number one is uh, don't don't sell securities or be a money transmitter. <laughs> I think that's the, <laughs> so don't, don't, don't run... Don't say I'm running a hosted Bitcoin wallet solution uh, in the U.S. that sends funds to Iran. If you do that, you're not going to have a good time. Uh, thing two is is hire very sparingly. Um, employees are, are some of the most difficult uh, things you can obtain, and you should hire really as few of them as you possibly can for as long as you possibly can. They're expensive. They complain a lot. Um, they you know, they're they're difficult. They take time off. It's their employees are not not fun to have. I. I the, my least favorite thing about running another company was was uh, having employees. Um, the third thing I would say, um, so let's see, don't break the law, don't hire anybody, uh, don't take venture money if you can possibly avoid it. If you can figure out how to make money with, if you if the thing that you are building is worth building, chances are pretty good that you'll be able to make money just by hooking it into Stripe, pushing go, and then watching money print in. And if that's the case, then you might have some argument that you should start hiring aggressively to go scale out and, and things like that. Failing that, um, you if you're if you're saying, well, we've got to do all of this building before we um, you know, we we have a widget that's useful, you either don't know the area that you're in well enough to be playing around in it. So one there's a law-based startup in California. They attempted to computerize the law, and they did that by basically having a captive law firm, which was then subsidized by venture money and a couple of software tools that the law firm used. Um, so, which is kind of it's a weird approach. But basically, the founder, in my opinion, didn't really understand the businesses he was getting into, and so it was this giant sinkhole for venture money. So he didn't understand the economics of the business he was going into. Um, I think I should really rather than the top five, I said that's a top three. And those those are the things that you, you encounter the most. So it's um, people either they don't understand the regulatory space. That's the biggest one. And then they have to be you have to take some very aggressive corrections. Uh, thing two is that they overhire uh, too early and they burn. They basically ruin their runway because they've hired too many people. Uh, employees really should be the last absolute last thing that you bring on. Uh, and that uh, if you can possibly avoid it. And then the third thing is, um, is oh gosh, where were we, Petri? I'm getting lost. <laughs> so, so. Maybe I can help you out here and smoothly sift the topic. Yeah. So if I'm thinking of uh, having my headquarters in the US, I'm having European operations at the moment. 
is it a good idea? Can I get into the country? Can I get money? Is US already sort of past its peak? And I should maybe look somewhere else or just stay in Europe if I'm in Europe or wherever I am and just build my company from here. The US is easily the best environment to raise venture capital in. And that has been the case for a very, very long time. So if you're looking for VC money after COVID is over, America still is number one. Um, and I think it's a pretty easy place to live. The taxes are are fairly easy. You can go find places like Utah or Wyoming where the government will pretty much leave you alone. Um, I, I don't have any problem. The only issue with the US right now is that our cities are falling apart, uh, particularly the big cities that were run by Democrats. And um, and and that's and COVID is a thing. So and I think that there, those two things are probably connected. Um, so, because a lot of the people who live and work in the cities who are lower income work in service industries that no longer require their services. So I, I suspect that when COVID ends, uh, the city situation in our cities will also likely end. Um, query whether in, in the US there has been a, a sense of a loss of trust between varying communities. I think that the suburbs and the rural areas really have acquired an enormous amount of distrust for urban elites, and they regard the urban elites as having screwed all this up for them um, by enacting certain policies or not being aggressive enough with policing or things like that. And so that may change the dynamic in America a bit, but I think America still is the best place in the world to do a business uh, or to build a business. The other thing is we have to now start understanding uh, what the world is going to look like after this is done. We're starting to see the internet cleave off into individual national networks. So TikTok just got banned in India. It just got banned in the US. Um, It's likely that we're going to see expanding app bans. So WeChat uh, is currently proposed to be banned in the United States. It's a a very popular Chinese messaging app uh, and payments app. And so so what we're seeing is the internet is starting to split up into different universes. And so you're going to have to decide which universe you want to be in. I think the US will probably continue to have sway over at least the Western Hemisphere and Europe, right? And probably Africa also. Uh, so I think that's probably the biggest market and it's probably the sa- within that market, it's probably the safest large power to uh, to build a business in. So as compared to you know, Europe, for example, which is not, you know, it's a bunch of different states. So it's a, it's a different regulatory environment. And the US has a big, enormous home market where you can build these things in uh, with 400 million users or so, or 350 million users. So that I think is, um, I think the U.S. is still a good place to do business. The immigration thing, obviously, that's going to be an issue wherever you try to build your business. And whether that's a problem is going to depend on where the founders need to be and where the employees need to be. But to the extent you can do things in the U.S., I say, why not? Could I do it just uh, from Estonia, Germany or Greece or wherever I just, uh, you know, happen to be and have incorporated my company? Could I just uh, basically run my business the U.S. business without U.S. entity from elsewhere. Is that actually even possible? Is there too many risks involved to do that? You can service American customers from overseas without having a U.S. entity or without having um, you know, U.S. employees. It's But it just is going to be a little more complex from a tax perspective. So if you expect that you're going to have a predominantly American business, things just get much more straightforward if you are running that business outside of the United States. It's just it's just a question of, of, of ease of use. Okay, sounds good. I've been off from the blockchain and the Bitcoin and, and that world for a while. Um, it's been many years I was involved. Uh, it's pretty much the same time you were founding your company. I was also you know, talking with Tim Swanson and, and you know, yep. smart contracts 2.0 and, and stuff like that. What's exciting now? You've been in the pulse all the time. Is something really coming now uh, out of the woodworks? In a sense, we start to see some serious traction and regular people are starting to use things. Yeah, there are two things that, that are, well, really three. So one of them is called Layer 2. Um, and so Layer 2 is a, a series of technologies that utilize underlying Layer 1 chains and, um, and basically conduct secure transactions off-chain, which then eventually settle back onto the chain. And the reason that's important is because if you have all, if you were expecting that the entire world's transactions would be run on something like Bitcoin, you're going to be disappointed because there's no way that that Bitcoin could actually hold on to that much data. So there needs to be a solution, a credible solution, a secure solution, which allows people to move Bitcoin around without actually leaving data trails on the Bitcoin chain itself. 
And so we're seeing a number of different solutions that are aiming at that, both in the Bitcoin universe and the Ethereum universe. And those are generally referred to as quote unquote layer two. So that's thing one. Thing two is, um, is scalability more generally. So as part of this problem um, that, that these chains have being too bloated, people are trying to figure out other ways that you can either share the load and re-decentralize the chain so that you don't have a, a handful of large nodes which are responsible for running full nodes for the chains. So there are a range of different technologies in discussion. So sharding is one. So sharding is something which is which exists in, in other settings, but doesn't currently exist in a blockchain setting because blockchains are sequential. And so what you need to do in order to verify the most recent transactions, you need to be able to eventually verify that all the transactions exist in order um, going back to the beginning of the chain. So no one's really figured out a, um, a good solution to that. Um, but, but I imagine humans are clever and so maybe we will. So that, that's the second thing. The third is DeFi, um, or decentralized finance, but, uh, most of which is, is totally harebrained and, uh, and based on, uh, you know, alchemical black magic, that that isn't going to work in any market that, that moves down. So we saw one of the most popular DeFi solutions is something called MakerDAO. And that is, it, it creates a stable coin, which is designed to hold its value against the U S dollar. Um, when there was a very adverse correction in the Bitcoin and Ether markets at the beginning of COVID-19, MakerDAO broke uh, and it ceased to perform as advertised. So, so basically, a lot of people lost a lot of money. And the reason for that is because these systems were great when the price of the underlying collateral that backs them is going up, but they don't work so great if the price that, of the underlying collateral that backs them is going down. So there are circumstances under which virtually every DeFi system that has been described um, will break, can and will break. And basically, it's, it simply relies on one of these cryptocurrency platforms being abandoned or, uh, or, or its use diminishing to, uh, to a very, very small fraction of what it currently is. So it assumes that people will continue buying the underlying shitcoin. And if that's the case, then everything's going to work fine. I don't think that's a safe assumption to make. It's not a, it, it's not, it, it, we make certain assumptions in the way that we run our societies. Um, so for example, we make assumptions that the dollar is going to be used uh, and a legal tender for the payment of all debts, public and private and taxes. Um, that is something where, which allows you to build a financial system on the back of that, because you know, you ultimately have that demand for us dollars, which sits behind it. I'm not sure that that is necessarily true with crypto. And indeed there are widespread suspicions that, um, crypto may be more manipulated than, um, than is currently being let on. And, uh, through things like other stablecoin projects, which may or may not be printing vast quantities of fake dollars and pumping those dollars into the market, allegedly. So that's the kind of stuff where people in DeFi say, well, we've replicated it. It's kind of a cargo cult version of regular finance. It looks similar. It performs the same way. We can go spend it and do whatever we're going to do. Um, and But here are our assumptions. And when you look at the assumptions, I think it's fairly straightforward to say these assumptions are flawed. Uh, and so and, and so that I adopt a very critical approach towards the DeFi space, although it has hints of what the future could be. And those hints are... You know, there are automated financial contracts, which can be integrated with Bitcoin, which can be integrated with layer two solutions, um, and which ideally could be integrated with just generally digital money in the future. That again is going to eat into the market share of large banks and other financial institutions and, uh, and likely eviscerate them uh, given enough time and remove a lot of the sort of junior talent at those institutions, much like AI is going to remove a lot of junior talent in the legal profession. So it's, those are the three things. Would you predict that uh, we will start to see those kind of shifts you, you described maybe in the latter part of this decade after five years or so? Five, five years should be enough. What is your favorite word? Um, oh, gee. Favorite word. Marmot. Probably my favorite word. I like marmot. It's a good word. What is your least favorite word? Least favorite word. Wet. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, marmots. I, think I, I like marmots. They're, they're my muse. They really inspire me to do great things. I hope someone is actually having a ticker because, you know, it's getting hard to count all these rodents. <laughs> what turns you off? Um, shitty people. So people who are, uh, people who are either selfish or short-sighted who are unable to respect difference in other people. 
um, and who think that their opinions uh, are more important than the opinions of others and who don't recognize that they are but a, a, a moat of dust on an obscure rock floating around on the rim of a very large galaxy, which is in a very unremarkable galactic cluster in a very unremarkable corner of the universe. Uh, people who, are, who have an overinflated self, sense of self-importance. Um, what is your favorite curse word? I'm not going to say it. It's not a, I don't, I'm not going to. I mean, I suppose the curse word that I'm allowed to say would be shitcoin. And that is a Bitcoin or curse word. I think, uh, which is a which is a fair one. So let's let's put that one on the record as my favorite. Now I'm curious, why is censored the one you are not supposed to say? Because And it's my, not the rodent, or my, is it? No, my my mother would be disappointed. Okay, I see. What sound or noise do you love? What noise? Um, I think so. There are a couple of different like spacecraft engines from science fiction. So I like the the Tie Fighter. That's a particularly like favorite sound. Um, and also the Millennium Falcons engine. That's another another favorite sound. So I think those two sounds from Star Wars are actually some of my favorites. And also actually the the Thunderbolt, let me make sure I get it right. I think it's called the Thunderbolt T-1000. So it's a, it's a siren that, um, that they use during the Cold War. It's a two-tone uh, nuclear warning siren. And I really like the sound of that particular siren. What sound or noise do you hate? People talking loudly on the phone. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, in an ideal world, I would like to be a psychiatrist. But I think that's uh, that there's too much school involved. I've been to too much school and I'm not I'm not going back. <laughs> so. But the good news is there are no schools in the future, so maybe we just wait for a few years. Yeah, I think I think for uh, for medicine and law, unfortunately, I think a lot of school is going to remain for a very long time. Um, so, so I don't think you can get school out for those two things. But, uh, but yeah, that's I I'm not going to go do that because that would require much more school. What profession would you not like to do? Doctor, I would not want to be a doctor. I'd like a like a doctor of like an internal medicine or a surgeon or anything like that. It's too messy and ugh, awful. If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? Oh, Google, and I'd be retired on a on a beach somewhere. <laughs> Never work again. That would be. <laughs> so you would you would be the third wheel of Google. <laughs> yeah, if I if I could have been if I could have been like really early uh, at Google, like one of the early employees, like that would have been fine. I would have then gone and. I don't know, surfed for something for another 10 years, you know, 20 years, however long I had left on the planet. Um, but that, I mean, yeah, go, go big or go home. And, uh, yeah. The first in-house lawyer in Google. Maybe who knows? Um, yeah, who knows? Any final words for the audience? Um, final words. I mean, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation we've had. Um, I hope you, look up the Marmot Recovery Foundation, which is a great charity, uh, marmots.org. And they do some really important work. I'm not kidding. They do some very important work to uh, save the very endangered and very adorable uh, Vancouver Island Marmot uh, from extinction. And yeah, I just say, um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I, I get to see a lot of weird tech up close and personal and uh, with the, the people who build that weird tech. And um, you know, even though we're in a very dark time, I'm very optimistic that we're going to have some very interesting times ahead with the kinds of people who are and kinds of businesses uh, that they're building. Um, yeah. So I think COVID's going to end and when it ends, it's going to be a really interesting time to be an American. Thank you, Preston. Always fun to talk about marmots. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you for listening. You can find full episode notes and transcripts at talkswithpetri.com. If you read the episode transcript, You may have seen that I wrote there 22, and that's the correct answer for the count of marmots in this episode. And the story behind being lucky was explained in the last third episode. Nail it before you scale it. If you like the show, please tell your friends and send me feedback. It's always fun to read what you like and why, so that I can make this show better for you. Till next time.